0: If you would be good enough to turn to page 76 in the Pew Bible, we come to our first reading this morning from the book of Exodus, and we're going to read from verse uh, 1 of chapter 19. The children of Israel have uh, continued their journey. Uh, They have uh, gone through uh, the Red Sea. God has provided for them manna and quail and they have had water come from the rock. So we come to uh, the section leading up to the receiving of the Ten Commandments, and there's a real sense of the holiness uh, of uh, God in this chapter. So uh, Exodus chapter 19, we're going to read from verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, On the very day, they came to the desert uh, of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim. They entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and said before them the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud. So that people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the people what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate themselves today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them be careful that you do not go up onto the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid in him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they then go up onto the mountain.
1: Uh, If I can invite you to turn back to Exodus chapter 19, we're going to continue our scripture reading where we left off. So this is on page 77 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to begin our reading at Uh, Chapter 19, verse 14, and we're going to go all the way through to Exodus, chapter 20, verse 21. So let's hear God's word. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day... There was thunder and lightning, with a very thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, And we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, give us open ears, open hearts, that we might hear you speaking to us from heaven today in the power of your Holy Spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have arrived at Sinai at last. This is the destination that the Israelites have been heading towards for the past many weeks. And the Israelites are going to never leave Sinai over the whole of the rest of the book of Exodus. In fact, they'll be here 10 months, not a long time in the grand scheme of things, but nearly 60 chapters of the Bible will be taken up with describing all that happens at Mount Sinai. This is a pivotal moment in the life of God's people. And in fact, we'll see as we go on in this series, the people of God never really move on from Sinai. They're going to actually end up taking this Sinai experience with them when they leave. So this is the destination for the Lord's people. But put yourself in the shoes of one of the Israelites for a moment this morning, and you might be feeling a little bit underwhelmed. You've been promised a land of milk and honey And now you've been brought into this wilderness with this mountain of covered in smoke and fire. And you might be thinking of a kind of a volcano kind of an experience. But clearly there's more to it than that, because there's also thunder and lightning and the sound of a trumpet blast that just gets louder and louder. And then the voice of the Lord speaks from high up above you. Saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols to worship me. Don't misuse my name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. What sort of a destination is this? Well, we're all familiar with these ten commandments or ten words that the Lord spoke from heaven. And perhaps to us, they remind us of, of dead religion or of cold legalism. Or perhaps, perhaps they simply terrify us with their, their, their stark reminder of God's standards. But whatever else they are, they are God's standards speaking from heaven, declaring his will for his people. They are the destination in many ways that the Lord is wanting to bring people to. They are the goal of this salvation. And so it's important for us to understand them. And if we're going to understand them, the big thing that we need to do is see that these words are meant to be understood in the context of a relationship. And so this morning, we're not going to focus so much on the Ten Commandments themselves. We're going to focus on the relationship that they are in and how the Ten Commandments fit into that relationship. And to see what that relationship is all about, we need to go back three days to Exodus 19 and the the first uh, few verses, verses 4 to 5, when the people arrive at the foot of the mountain. And I've got three points to make this morning about that relationship. So let's pick it up at verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. So firstly, this relationship is a grace-based relationship. In just a few words, the Lord summarises all that he has done for the people of Israel in the Exodus so far. And the key point to note, it's all that he has done. See how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Exodus so far has all been a story about God's grace. It's not about what the people have done. They've barely done anything. This is about the Lord carrying his people on eagles' wings. The ten plagues, the Red Sea, the water and the bread, all of this was a kind of transportation on the back of eagles' wings. God's grace is his undeserved kindness to sinners. God's grace gives us what we don't deserve and lets us go free. But don't be fooled into thinking that God's grace is just a sort of fancy way of saying that God's actually quite nice at the end of the day. God's grace is not just a kind of a shrug of the shoulders or a a pat on the head for our best efforts and, you know, well done, that'll do. God wants us to think of his grace at work in our lives like, like being picked up by an eagle and carried to a new destination. I've never been carried on the back of an eagle, and I'm guessing neither have you. But I have seen footage of a camera strapped to the back of a snow goose uh, migrating uh, up to the North Pole. And watching that footage, it, if it's anything like being carried on the back of an eagle, it's an exhilarating, powerful, slightly scary, nerve wracking experience as, the, as the, the bird pushes its wings through the air. That's how God wants us to see his kindness. It's powerful. It doesn't leave us as it finds us, but brings us to a new destination. This is kindness with a, with a purpose. God's kindness brings us to himself. The purpose of God's kindness is a grace-based relationship. The God of Exodus is a God who will, quite literally, move heaven and earth to bring us to him. So a grace-based relationship. But secondly, that relationship is also a two-way relationship. Carry on in verse 5. The Lord says to Moses, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Now I think it's helpful here to think of this as the Lord essentially offering a kind of a proposal of marriage here. And we, we don't see the marriage at any point we, today, we're going to see that in a couple of weeks in Exodus chapter 24. But the Lord is saying to his people today as he proposes to them, I will be your God and you can be my treasured possession. But like any marriage, uh, that is going to require commitment from both parties. And so the Lord says, keep my covenant. If you enter into this marriage with me, you're going to have to keep my covenant. And so the Lord is now calling for a response from his people. He's calling for a committed two-way relationship. Now, I think we need to pause here and just try and take this in. What have we seen about the Lord so far in Exodus? Remember, he says that he is the one who is. I am what I am. He reminds his people here, he's the God of all the earth. And yet he says that we can be his treasured possession. That word treasured possession is used elsewhere in the Bible of a king's special treasure. So we might think of a a crown uh, or the scepter or the orb in the Tower of London that get brought out for special occasions for the coronation and things like that. Priceless treasure. Cherished treasure. Protected treasure. Well, the Lord who is says we can be his special treasure, cherished by him, loved by him. Although God created and loves all the earth, we can be specially loved by him. And if that's true, then doesn't that suddenly change everything? Doesn't that suddenly change all the other ways that we value ourselves? If we are God's priceless treasure, then does it really matter if we're not smart or we're not hot or we're not fun or we're not productive? Does it really matter? Those things are going to be way down the list of what matters, aren't they? If we can be God's treasured possession. And this is our destiny. This is what the Lord brings us to. See how I carried you on Ingalls' wings to bring you to myself into this two-way relationship. Uh, John Owen uh, talks about this relationship as a mutual giving and receiving between God and the saints while they walk together in the covenant of peace. That's the goal of God's grace a two way relationship, mutual giving and receiving, a walking together with God in the covenant of peace. I think this actually gives us a bigger view of God's grace. You see, God's grace isn't something that kind of drags us along unwillingly by the scruff of the neck. God's grace is always going to go ahead of us, creating the way. But it's always going to also sort of turn around and and call us to come after it, to follow God's grace. And that seems to be good, doesn't it? It seems to be right that there's a shift from a kind of a one-way relationship where God does everything for the people into a more mature two-way relationship. So many of you will know in a few weeks I'm looking forward to becoming a dad again for the third time. And I've now got a bit of a sense of what to expect with that. And one of the things I'm expecting to be doing is changing a lot of nappies. And that's grace, isn't it? That, that Those babies are so dependent that they, they, they can't do anything themselves. You have to change their nappies. But of course you're, you're not hoping that that relationship will stay like that forever. You're hoping that all that work, all that all that you're doing for the child will, will actually bear fruit. It'll be eventually resulting in a two-way relationship as the child goes up. You can chat together and enjoy a relationship together, fellowship together. And that's what the Lord is wanting. That's what kind of relationship the Lord is bringing his people into. From a one-way relationship where he does everything to a two-way relationship where he still does everything, but we respond to his grace. Now, in some ways, that that illustration is helpful, but it's not helpful in that it's natural for me to to have a two-way relationship with my my daughter. But it is not natural for the Lord who is to have a two-way relationship with us. It's out of his grace that God gives us this opportunity to be his treasure. The God of Sinai comes down in order to lift us up to him. So we've got a grace-based relationship, a two-way relationship. But finally, what kind of a relationship will this actually look like? What will a relationship with the one who is really mean? Well, we see that in our final verse, verse 6. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, And a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So go back again, put yourself in the Israelites' shoes. This is quite a transformation, isn't it? Going from being slaves in Egypt, and now the Lord says, You are going to be a kingdom. But not just any kingdom, you're going to be a holy nation, a kingdom in which everyone is a priest. Everyone is holy enough to approach me. Everyone is holy enough to have fellowship with me. That's our destination then, thirdly. A holy relationship for every one of the Lord's people. So friends, don't believe the lie that holiness is a sort of minority pursuit uh, for people who are Interested in that sort of thing. A bit like train spotting. It's a bit weird, but somebody's got to do it. Holiness is not just for Holy Joes. It's for Holy Bob and Holy Auntie Pat and Holy Jack. Holiness is for everyone. Why? Because holiness is our destiny. It's what we were made for. Adam and Eve go all the way back were created as holy people. That's what it meant for them to be in the image of God. They were holy. They alone of all the creatures had rational souls that were able to be moral, to be holy, to be good, to be able to reflect something of God's own purity and perfect life in their lives. And so they were like priests. They were able to walk with God in the garden and have fellowship with him. But when they sinned, They became unholy. They still had bodies, they still had souls, but now they were corrupt. They weren't able to produce the holiness that they were made for anymore. We lost the image of God. And so when God says to the people, you will be a holy nation, he's offering us nothing less than a fulfillment of our destiny. He's offering to the people that that they can fulfill their potential with his help. They can, again, be a picture of God's utterly perfect life. Holiness is not a narrow thing. Holiness frees us from the narrowness that we get ourselves into through our sin, and it opens us up to the wideness of God's purpose for us. Holiness, you could say, is is wholeness. Holiness is healthy. And now the Lord says it's possible for us to get healthy again. But it comes, of course, in this two-way relationship. The Lord says, if you keep my covenant, then you will be a holy nation. There is a response required if we're going to fulfill our potential. And that response is ultimately going to be guided by the law, which we have summarized for us here in the Ten Commandments. Well, the law in general, and I think particularly God's law, is not really a popular topic in East Belfast these days. I don't think you're going to have great conversations on the school gate uh, about how wonderful God's law is, are you? And I think maybe we struggle ourselves to have those conversations because we struggle ourselves to really say that God's law is wonderful. And I wonder if that's because sometimes when we step back and look at the whole Bible and the big picture, we kind of see it as the Old Testament is all about God's law. God's law. And that's bad. And then the New Testament comes along, and that's going to all be about God's grace, and that is good. And so we kind of see a sort of a shift. God's law gets replaced with God's grace. And we end up seeing God's law as this sort of slightly awkward thing. We don't want to talk about it very much. Because we think law gets replaced by grace. But actually, in the Bible, it's exactly the opposite way around. Every single time. And here in this passage, it's always grace comes first. See how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then grace always brings with it the law. Because there's always a certain order, if you like, in God's promises. As we receive God's promises, God says to us that he wants us to respond to him. His grace is always going to carry us But if we're going to enjoy his salvation, enjoy his grace, enjoy all that the Lord has for us, we are going to need to respond. The book of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so the law is not opposed to God's grace. God's grace makes this response possible and the law guides us in making it. I was chatting this week to a a guy who does a bit of running instruction, and he was telling me about the different running plans he creates uh, for people. And he says he really enjoys that because uh, he helps people to kind of uh, achieve personal bests and to fulfill their potential. Uh, But of course it's hard work as he kind of creates these frameworks so that people can follow them and uh, get faster at running. But we we understand that's a good thing, isn't it, to have that kind of discipline that leads to uh, fulfilling your potential. And that's how we need to see God's law. It's like a kind of an exercise plan for holiness. The law shows us how to respond to God's grace, how to fulfill our potential as holy people. The law, if you like, is like a kind of a road map of the image of God. The Ten Commandments show us what it looks like to be kings and priests to God, to be holy people, to fulfill our destiny as human beings. Now, I'm conscious you may have lots of questions about the law in general and about the Ten Commandments in particular and particularly whether they can really be a guide to life for Christians today. And if you've got those questions, I would really encourage you to come to Life Builders. Uh, Come back uh, after you've had a cup of coffee and it would be great to chat about those questions. But just for the final couple of minutes, I want us to come back to the foot of this mountain and to this response of fear that we began with. Because I'm sure some of you are thinking, Sam, you're trying to tell us that the law is really good, that it's not opposed to God's grace, but in fact sweetly complies to it. That's how the Westminster Confession talks about it. But you'll say, Sam, how can it be like that when it produces this response of fear? Well, I think that response does tell us something very important about God's law that we must not miss. And so I wonder if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. It's on page 1,211 in the Pew Bibles. So that's Hebrews 12, 1, 1. And just have a look at verse 14. The apostle says... Make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But he says to his Christian readers, verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled word that speaks a better sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we If we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. So as God speaks from heaven at Mount Sinai, we're getting a picture of the heavenly Zion. We haven't come here today to a physical mountain, but we have come together in the Lord's presence. And we when we gather together like this, we we are in some ways in the presence of his throne room, the heavenly Mount Zion. And so there's this basic similarity between the Sinai experience and our experience today as Christians. We need to respond to this one who speaks to us from heaven. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But there's a very important dissimilarity between their experience and ours. When the people of Israel, and even Moses, trembled with fear, As they heard the Lord speaking to them, we instead, Hebrews tells us, are part of a joyful assembly. There's a kind of a festive gathering to this idea of coming to Mount Zion. And what makes the difference? The sprinkled blood of Jesus. Sinai, if you like, is the Lord giving his people a taste of what it would be like to approach God without coming to him through Jesus. And it is terrifying. Now, all around that event is all of this relationship stuff, all of, this, all of these promises. And we'll see later that there's lots of promises that point forwards to Jesus as we go through the rest of this series. But at the very heart of this relationship, God reminds his people, this is what it is like to come before me on your own. Even if you try to live a very good life, the law will always be thunder and darkness to you it will always terrify you. Because by ourselves, we can never be healthy enough to keep God's covenant. But if you come to God today and the rest of your life through the mediator of the new covenant, through Jesus Christ the Lord, then it will be like you're always carried on eagle's wings brought into this wonderful two-way relationship with God. And the law then will be your sweet response to God's grace your guide to fullness of life, to holy life, as you walk in the covenant of peace with God through Christ our Lord. And so through him and with him be glory to the Father with the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, may our lives reflect the beauty of our Lord. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: One and a half million people have been affected by the powerful earthquake and resulting tsunami which struck Sulawesi on the 28th of September. Thousands have been killed and injured, and whole, whole communities decimated. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, your word tells us that although the whole earth is yours, we are a kingdom of priests called to intercede before your throne, a holy nation privileged to pray for your treasured possession. We gladly respond to you and do so, especially for the relief efforts on behalf of hundreds of thousands of survivors in Indonesia in urgent need of assistance. We thank you for the £60,000 already released from PCI. And pray for next Sunday's Moderator's Appeal. And ask that through the combined work of Tier Fund, Christian Aid, and the communion of Christian churches in Indonesia, many people will be given relief from suffering, comfort in distress, and hope as they consider the enormity of their futures rebuilding their lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for fellowship in the faith and for collective responsibility in this place. As this coming week, office bearers and the steering group meet in order to consider potential builders for our project. Please will you be with them, leading, guiding and giving wisdom. Heavenly Father, thank you for the landmark ruling of the Supreme Court last week in favor of Asher's Bakery, for the support for freedom of conscience and expression and for its global significance. We don't take that for granted, but express huge appreciation for the outcome. And pray now for all concerned on both sides of the legal argument and pray that they will find their dignity and identity in you, the altogether good and just and holy God. And finally, we pray for people who weigh heavily on our hearts and our minds We pray for members of the walking group on their weekend away in Donegal and pray for them safety and good fellowship. For people who are struggling with life at the moment, those who are receiving medical care and treatment, those who are fragile and vulnerable. And ask that carried on eagles' wings, they would know what it is, to experience wholeness and brought close to yourself. These are prayers we offer in the name and for the sake of Christ, the fulfillment of the law, our Lord, our God.